Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, welcome back. I'm Julie Gould and this is Working Scientist, a nature careers podcast. And we are smack bang in the middle of the Muddle of the Middle series. In the previous episodes of this series, we've heard from guests about how difficult and stressful the mid-career can be. It's a delicate balancing act of academic career, you know, the writing grant applications and papers, reviewing other people's grants and papers, supervising, mentoring, doing research, etc., etc., and the other side of the coin, which is a family and personal life. And it's also not that everything is going wrong all in one go. Sometimes it's much more subtle. You can actually have everything going really well for you at this point in your career. You've got the job, you've got the funding in, the research published, students are mentored, family and personal life is going well too. So how can it be that while you're doing things that seem worthwhile, nevertheless, there's this sense of emptiness or hollowness or frustration? This is the philosophical puzzle that Kieran Setia, a professor of philosophy at MIT, has been thinking about. And this hollowness and frustration can lead to more serious issues. It can get to people. It can become too much, lead to burnout and to breakdowns. Some call it the mid-career crisis, others the mid-career malaise. And you know what? It made me really sad to think that this was happening to people who, at the heart of it all, actually love what they do. Almost everyone who is a scientific researcher is one because they are curious people. They are passionate about their science and they love their research. So I wanted to find a way to help those in the mid-career stage who might be struggling with the stress of it all. And I wanted to help them find a way to reconnect with their love for their work, to take a step back and to look at the bigger picture and remind themselves of why they wanted to be a scientist in the first place. So before we go back to Kieran and his philosophical puzzle, I actually wanted to share some thoughts from an economist. My name is Sander Schwand. I'm an economist by training and I'm an associate professor of uh, human development and social policy at Northwestern University. Hannes is interested in life satisfaction research and he's trying to understand why there seems to be this period of malaise in the middle. And the pattern that appears over and over in the data is this kind of U-shape in life satisfaction over the life cycle so that you know young people are quite happy and the happiness declines with age and you know hits rock bottom in, in midlife so you know between the mid 40s mid 50s and then increases again 
this life satisfaction curve is actually mimicked in surveys about career satisfaction. And in fact, that is how all this life satisfaction research started in the first place. Andrew Oswald, who is a professor of economics and behavioural science at Warwick University, first witnessed this U-shaped satisfaction curve when surveying job satisfaction in the 1990s, when this field of research was relatively new. The point there is, of course, that um, jobs, the work, uh, are really important parts of people's lives, also of their identity, right? So if you just feel like generally you're dissatisfied about your life, uh, it very easily can, you know, a very important part of that can be an association of like dissatisfaction with your job. And so I think, you know, mid-career and mid-life aspects, they're very closely connected. So if this U-shape can be seen across both life and job satisfaction, why is there and why do people expect life satisfaction to decrease in midlife? Hannes used data from the German Socioeconomic Panel, a longitudinal study from 1991 to 2004, which looked at people's expected life satisfaction and compared it to actual life satisfaction. And what you see very consistently across, you know, uh, across all periods in the data set, across, across different subgroups, across different parts of the country and so on, is that young people, you know, don't anticipate the uh, life satisfaction going down with age, they actually expect that things will even improve with age. Um, and then um, as, as you know, life satisfaction goes down with age, uh, expectations also decline. They actually decline faster and then they meet uh, uh, in, you know, in, the, in the midlife, just at the bottom when, you know, when, when, when life satisfaction is lowest and the um, expectations actually stay relatively low. The data was so consistent that Hannes thought there must be a mistake. He cut the data every which way he could think of, compared it to other studies, and yet still the pattern persisted. It must be those young folk, right? Those young folk with such a rosy view of the future. And to be honest, I don't think I want to change that. But why does it go away? Why, in our middle age, do we get bitter? Well, you can kind of see how this might happen. Here's a little example. Imagine a young person, happy, free, few cares. Life is going well and they expect things to continue along that path. And, you know, why wouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? But as the years go by, things start to go, well, not wrong per se, but not as expected and disappointments come along. Life satisfaction starts going down at the same time. So this is misery. And at this point, they're probably learning that their expectations were too high too. So double misery. So in midlife, you're suddenly in the situation in this double misery where like the past looks bad and the future suddenly also looks bad, right? Um, and what then happens is this really important mechanism that the aging brain understands to, to, to feel less regret about past uh, mischances. Interestingly, you can actually see this in some neuroscience brain studies. So an example is in 2012, where Brasson and colleagues asked older people and younger people to play a game where they had to stop playing at some point. And if they played too long, they started losing money. And if they stopped too early, they forewent additional gains. So at some point, they would stop the people from playing the game and then showed them what they'd missed out on by not continuing to play. And the young people... They are really upset. You know, you see their, you know, their, 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 their heart rate going up. You see their brains lightening up. So also, like, you know, in, in the brain scanner, um, you see, like, all those, like, physical reactions, the, head st the hands starting to sweat. Older, uh, older uh, subjects, there was no response at all. The older ones were like, meh, whatever, 
doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And that is a pattern that has been like generally observed that, um, you know, there's like this certain like, you know, aging wisdom or something that they, people are just like coming to terms with their life and dealing better with, with, ex, uh, with, with past disappointments. So overall, you know, this, this, the, this explanation, you know, that arises from, from the empirical data and at the same time from the research that the brain scientists have done, it's the idea that the U-shape is driven by um, unmet aspirations uh, that are painfully felt in midlife, but that are then beneficially abandoned and felt with less regret as people become older. The combination could indicate that there is some biological reason for the midlife malaise, thinks Hannes. And he's put together some mathematical models to describe the process. You make the current life satisfaction, the function of your disappointment about your life at the same period, right? Means if you, something, you know, doesn't turn out as nicely as you think, it can just be a small thing, right? That makes you disappointed. And then you become less happy about your life, which makes you more disappointed, which makes you more unhappy, etc., etc. You dig yourself into a deeper and deeper hole where you suddenly like are super frustrated with your life. You don't know what's going on, even though nothing really has happened. And this is what we touched on at the very beginning of this podcast, Kieran Setia's philosophical puzzle. How can it be that while you're doing things that seem worthwhile, nevertheless, there's this sense of emptiness or hollowness or frustration? There is an upside, I promise. There is a way to break the vicious circle. And it starts with by not calling this a crisis and trying to get it out of your life. It's on the opposite, just embracing and saying like, hey, that's something that's maybe normal, that's maybe partly biological, right? And it's, as you said at the beginning, you know, it's not necessarily pleasant, right? And maybe that's also not the point of it, but it is something that's a normal developmental stage. Oh my. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Goodness. It's like puberty all over again. If you're a grown-up, you think about children who are going through puberty and how confused they are. They don't really understand how the world works and you try to guide them through the tough times, help them identify and manage their emotions. But now, if you're grown-up and all of a sudden you have these unexplained emotions and you're supposed to know how the world works, but there's no one to guide you through these unexplained emotions or how to manage them. Well, one thing to say is we know it's coming. One way to help guide yourself through this period is by looking at it from a philosophical perspective, says Kieran Setia from MIT. It can help as a diagnostic tool to help analyse what you're doing that may be contributing to this mid-career malaise. So Kieran uses two different categories of describing people's present activities to help them understand and diagnose the origin of their malaise. And the first one he calls ameliorative values. So you think of ameliorative value as problem solving. So you're confronted with a problem you would rather not have to deal with. But now that it's here, you need to address it. And it's worth addressing. It still has value. There's something, there's something good about solving the problem. But nevertheless, if everything you're doing 
is devoted to solving problems that you'd rather not face, to just sort of answering needs, troubleshooting, putting out fires. There's a way in which if that's all you can do, there's nothing positively good about your your work or your career or this aspect of your life. And these ameliorative values contrast with the other kind he looks at, the existential values. The kind of thing that isn't just a double negative, like taking away something bad, but makes life or work positively good. So one kind of crisis around mid-career is, I think, that the the crush of the uh, people sometimes talk about the urgent and the important, you know, the crush of the things that are urgent and need doing because otherwise things will fall apart can expand to the point where the positive value of what you're doing is hard to make out. And that's one kind of crisis. And then the other kind of distinction that I think is philosophically illuminating and helpful is this distinction between what I call telic and atelic activities. Okay, time to put the entomology hats on here. So the word telic stems from the Greek word telos, which means end. So a telic activity is an activity with a definite end or goal. So turning in that grant application, applying for a job, running a series of experiments or submitting that paper. The problem with telic activities is you're always looking to the future. You're always trying to get something done. And as soon as it's done, that's over and you move on to the next one. There's a kind of hollowness in the present. And worse, in a way, what you're doing when you engage in telic activities or projects is you're trying to complete them. So you're trying to take something that's meaningful and sort of finish it, get it out of your life. Not all activities are like this. And here come the atelic activities. And these, according to Kieran, are projects without a terminal endpoint. And a really good example of this is the act of learning. There's no particular point at which you're done learning. There's it's a it's a sort of ongoing activity. For me, I think this was a very central part of what happened around mid-career that was challenging, was that I had gone from engaging in the atelic activity of philosophical reflection, reading and thinking about philosophy, into a kind of mode where my engagement with philosophy, which I still loved, was structured by project after project after project. This is starting to sound familiar, isn't it? I think so. This is the kind of thing we've heard other guests on this podcast series talk about. So how can we do the diagnostics? What sort of questions can you ask yourself? Okay, take a look at the activities in your life and ask, in terms of this distinction, these two distinctions between ameliorative and existential value, how much of my time is solving problems that I'd rather not have to deal with? Do I have room to do the kinds of things that seem positively worthwhile and positively interesting that maybe got me into this project, into this career in the first place? And then the other is, how much am I focusing on the sequence of projects that the kind of treadmill of getting things done as opposed to being able to value and appreciate the ongoing process of engagement. So how do you get people to sort of step back and look at the bigger picture when they've constantly got these people, you know, on their backs trying to get them to publish papers, to write reviews, to write grants, to try and, you know, hit those goals, um, especially in mid-career when that becomes really important, uh, you know, in order to develop your independence as a researcher and to build up, um, you know, prestige and make sure that you become known in your field. You can make this transition without necessarily changing what you're doing or becoming less productive. So all the time I'm engaging in telic activities. I still write philosophy papers. I still teach classes. So it's not that I've stopped doing those things. It's that I think of them as when I think about why I'm doing them and what I value about them, I think, well, I want to be engaging with philosophy, thinking about philosophy 
And look, the only way to do that is to teach classes and write papers. So it's sort of, I'm still doing that, but I think of it as sort of secondary or, or, or sort of subordinate to the, the thing that really matters, which is valuing philosophy and thinking about these kinds of philosophical questions. So it's not that you have to stop doing it. It's more about reframing which, which comes first, which is primary. Given that we know that the midlife malaise and the mid-career slump are coming to us, should we do something? So part of the problem is that I think for a lot of people, you don't have any bandwidth to do anything but try and finish your PhD, get a postdoc, get a job, set up a lab. And so you're, you're very much, you have your head down until the point when you suddenly have a little room to breathe you find yourself in mid-career, often that's the point at which you've got aging parents, you've got kids, you've got so many demands on your time. And then you start thinking, oh, you know, what am I doing with my life? Is this really worthwhile? It's just one thing after another. And given that that's predictable, I think there's a lot to be said for thinking about the structure of your career before you find yourself in the, in the mid-career crisis. We also know that many people have been through it before. So when I said earlier that there's no one around to guide us through our second puberty, actually, there might be. It might be worth reaching out to some of those people who have gone through it and come out the other side. Maybe what would be much better would be that those in midlife get mentoring from older colleagues, right? Get mentoring from those who are like around retirement age or maybe already in retirement, right? This could be like a wonderful, like, emeritus job, right? to help those struggling in midlife a little bit, you know, through, through that phase and, and navigating through that low. So given that we're thinking about prepping ahead of time, in the next episode of the Muddle of the Middle series, I've taken some questions from early career researchers and asked the current and previous mid-career ones to answer them. Hopefully this added insight and advice will help mentally prepare you for your future so that you don't feel so much like it's a muddle, but more like a determined and excited much taking the mid-career in your stride. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.